This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. This episode consists of a special interview with The Wigs' new India correspondent, Siddharth Narain. Siddharth is an Indian lawyer, journalist and academic and lecturer in law at Adelaide University. He and Stephen sat down for a chat about Sid's career, the Indian legal system, cases Sid's been involved in, the Indian media scene, human rights in India, including freedom of religion and much, much more. Now, this episode was recorded last year, but we think it stood the test of time. So here it is. Sid, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Wigs, mate. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so as you know, we had this idea of having correspondents from different countries. And mm-hmm. uh, you're the first person uh, to kindly accept our offer to be a correspondent, obviously the India correspondent. So, mate, why don't we kick off by you maybe introducing yourself to our listeners, explaining a bit about who you are and your career and stuff today. Because I've been reading about you and... It sounds terribly interesting. <laughs> uh, thanks, Stephen. Um, so I am currently doing a PhD here. I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I studied law in India. I've done different jobs related to the law, different aspects of the law. So I've uh, worked at a legal human rights organization in Bangalore. We did a lot of legal advocacy, litigation, and research. Um, I've also taught. I've taught at a, at a, at a multidisciplinary institution with a, which teaches an MA in law and politics in Delhi. I've been at a research institution doing law and media work. And I've also been a journalist. That was my first job. So I'm back to being an a correspondent, a different kind of correspondent here. But my first job was actually to cover legal and human rights issues for a fortnightly magazine and a newspaper. Both of those were in English, um, but they're pretty well-known and prestigious group of um, publications called The Hindu in, in based out of Delhi. Uh, so I've always been interested in this kind of intersection between law and media and, and also communicating law to the public to kind of a wider audience. But currently, I'm in Australia for the last three years in Sydney at UNSW uh, at the Law and Justice uh, Faculty, basically doing a PhD. Started in 2019, and the PhD is on looking at the legal regulation of online hate speech in India, basically. Uh, Wow, what a a fascinating career. And um, it's probably no surprise to our listeners that uh, we manage to stumble across someone like you because, yeah, one of our real interests is uh, the popularization, I guess, of complex legal concepts and trying to to have a show that is interesting but also informative for lawyers and non-lawyers. And um, it's hard, you know, because legal concepts by their nature, you know, are often really complex, um, uh, but they're also very much a broader interest as well. And it's a challenge that we have in the show where, you know, we try to talk on a sort of decent level of analysis, 
uh, but we hope that we do it in a way that communicates to people as well, which um, obviously legal journalism, I suppose, very much has that challenge. No, absolutely. I mean, the, it was a big challenge, not only to communicate to the public, but to communicate with your editors, uh, to people even within uh, the newspaper and organization who are trying to edit your work and, and make it readable. And then also to communicate to a larger public. It's not easy at all. Mm. And hats off to you guys for doing this. Uh, it, 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 you know, I know, I know it's, it's quite a difficult task, but it's also something very satisfying about being able to do that to a wider audience. So not a mm. small legal audience, but something wider than that. So how does the media market in India compare to Australia? I mean, it's obviously such a different country with such a broader degree, I guess, of diversity in so many ways. Yeah, so that, exactly, it's much more differentiated. So you have a, a very influential English media, um, who I would say, they're very influential, but the actual audience of English language media, whether it's print or broadcast or internet, it's quite small, but influential. Mm. You have a much larger vernacular regional media, um, so, you know, uh, Hindi, but not just Hindi, but a number of other regional languages. And they're really where the story is. They're really vibrant um, uh, news organizations. But, um, you know, they are, they're not, some of them might, it, it's a different kind of audience that they're reaching. Too often they reach out to tier two, three cities, smaller towns, um, not necessarily the big urban centers where you might find more people more who, who are reading and listening to content in English. So yeah, so it's a much, it's, it's a very different uh, situation because of that you have, uh, it's much more differentiated and it's much more uniform here, I would say in that, in that if you compare it. Yeah, interesting. And what are the main hate speech sort of issues in India? Just just going to the topic of your PhD. Um, so because you have this diversity of uh, a diversity of ethnicity, religion, and identity, um, you 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 have pre-existing kind of differences which which often play out in this in this form. So the hate speech debates there are are much more about how hate speech can actually lead to consequences like riots, uh, like um, lynchings and deaths. So the kind of harms we're talking about, often if we talk about hate speech here, the harms are much more in terms of, okay, it, it influences people to think a particular way, but there often it's much more direct in terms of the speech could lead to certain very harmful consequences, often, mm. often framed in public order terms. And that's that's a consequence of a particular historical trajectory of speech and legal mm -hmm. issues in India, which are often linked to public order disturbances and what the potential. So yeah, so that that's how it's often framed there. Uh, but but having said that, there is a kind of, there's a especially among the legal community and a, the free speech legal and tech community, there's a in now a move trying to move away from that framing. Uh, to move away to a more speech protective framing that will allow us to 
you know, it's, it, it ties you down this kind of public order of training because often it's all about how will the public respond? Will it lead to tensions? Will it lead to this? So often there's, you can be held hostage um, by the so-called possible consequences. So often speech is held hostage to these potential consequences. So the idea is how do we negotiate that? So what are you talking about there when you talk about the volatility, like the, you know, this tendency more easily or for violence to occur or public order incidences? What are the causes of that volatility in India broadly? So the causes are, are, are much wider, right? It's not directly the speech itself, but the speech is, a, is, a, is an effect of it. So the causes are much wider. So you have, um, for instance, if I take one example, religious tensions. So, and this dates back to the history of India itself, which is, uh, you know, when we got our independence from the British, uh, those, it came through a very violent and traumatic event, which was the partition of India into India and what was then West and East Pakistan. Now it's Bangladesh. But at that time, so there's this collective trauma, collective memory of intense violence and killings that took place at that time. And, 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 and the sense that um, somewhere the, the communities the different religious communities, especially I'm talking about Hindus and Muslims, but even other communities. So you have a, a majority of say 80% who technically Hindu, but of course that is even among Hindus, there are various traditions and sects, etc. cetera. Uh, and then you have Muslims and other minorities. And this plays out in, in different ways in terms of how political parties um, campaign, what, what they promise, et cetera. So, you have, and this is, um, it's much more in your face and very much part of our, um, if you go, if you go there, you know, religion is very much part of your life. It's not segregated uh, in the way that it is here. You have the state religion separation. It's, 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 it's a different context there. So this, this, this plays out in issues um, in the way who, you know, communities are targeted, uh, it also plays out in the way that um, there is a distinction. There's a there's there's a way in which, um, for instance, the Muslim community. If you look at their socioeconomic indices, it's very different. It's definitely. I would say there are parallels between the African American community in the U.S. and 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 the rest of society there, and 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 the Muslim community. So you might have segments who are well off, but more or more or less across the board, you would find that. Uh, their socioeconomic indices would be much less. So it plays out in those ways, but one of the ways it plays out, of course, is in this kind of targeting, targeting, mm. and especially Muslim women um, seem to be the latest uh, targets where they're really being targeted in, in many ways because of the current political environment in India. So does that create, like, if you're thinking about it from the point of view of, you know, the permissible regulation, say, of political speech under human rights standards, does that translate in India, you know, sometimes to a lower threshold? Like, it might be considered easier to ban certain speech applying what is essentially the same framework, sort of roughly, that might be applied internationally, you know, from a human rights perspective? 
Yeah, definitely. There's a, I would say, there's more of a pragmatic approach mm. uh, that's applied there, a more broad brush pragmatic approach, and an approach where often uh, it tends towards the consequences. So you don't want a particular consequence. You don't want uh, disturbances in society. That's often used as a pretext. Uh, and that would excuse what would otherwise in other societies uh, not be tolerated uh, as restrictions on speech. So you have a broader idea, uh, but, but one way of looking at it is just a different trajectory. It's a different mm. trajectory of speech. Um, and in different parts of the world. But, um, but there is also a kind of strong tradition of liberalism, Indian forms of liberalism that have evolved there, which take into account the fact that it's a society that's highly unequal, it's a society with these kind of tensions. Uh, so if you want to promote that as well as democratic values, uh, then how do you do it? It's a different form that it takes in India. Mm, interesting. You know, we sort of have on the weeks had various episodes where we've talked about issues that engage limitations on speech, like we talked about a proposal to ban the swastika in Victoria, and we sort of had, had an episode on a rap group that the New South Wales police have been pursuing that sort of raises these human rights issues. But it's almost sort of almost in an abstract context often here but I guess in a country where communal violence over temples and over a range of different issues leads to deaths on a fairly regular basis, it becomes very much non-abstract. That's exactly the point. Mm. So, you, so that's exactly there's the huge tension between, uh, even, even between people like me, like, you know, people who are invested in civil liberties, people who are in, invested in free speech issues and on what we are talking about and the tension between the day-to-day administration that let's say a government officer an Indian administrative service IAS officer the person who actually takes the decision so if and I've heard this in debates in India or very often where the where the government official will say tomorrow if there's a public order disturbance people's lives are at stake and and there's a riot and mm. it happens often so do you expect me to do you expect me to <clears throat> not cut off the internet or not take any action because uh, you want me to protect free speech or do you want me to say do you want do you, do you you know what do you want me to do so i have to act mm. i have to act immediately otherwise i will be basically pulled up for not taking any action so that's one part of the story the other part of the story is because of this you have it have these restrictions used by governments uh, to clamp down on minority speech, to, to use instrumentally. So you'll have governments which would say that we don't, we are trying to protect people and keep them safe. So at the same time, they will conveniently use the law to target dissent. And you see this in other countries as well. Mm. Like the kind of instrumental use of the, and hate speech laws are a prime example of this. So my only exposure to the Indian legal system is working in countries in the Pacific where there were Fijian Indian lawyers working mm-hmm. who obviously had more exposure to the Indian legal system. And the thing that really struck me about it was 
these very smart Fijian Indian lawyers could find an Indian case for virtually any proposition. And I've got this impression of incredible diversity in the Indian legal system. It's obviously a federal system, right? So you've got state and federal courts and many, many states, I gather. So that was the impression I got of this incredible diversity of sort of concepts and places and issues. Um, it might be useful maybe for our listeners to set the scene for, for you regularly appearing on the show as a correspondent to maybe try to give them a bit of an overview of the essential features of the Indian legal system, which I know is probably going to be almost a Herculean task. Yeah, I'll I'll try my best to do it in a short time. In five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the one of the key features is that it's 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 a it's a constitutional uh, the Indian constitution is basically the bedrock of the system. So I would say uh, uh, the history comes from the fact that um, the Indian nationals who fought for independence were very clear that they wanted a constitution with a bill of rights, um, and so that is so, so different from say the choices that was that Australia made or other countries have made. So it was very clear at, at that time. So um, and 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 there are there are three things that really mark the the Indian constitutional system. One is it's there's a lot of focus on keeping it's it's a federal system, but the, it's a very top-heavy federal system. So the center has a lot of powers, um, and these powers include dismissing state governments. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. It, it, they, and 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 it's been used before. It's not something that's theoretical. Uh, so if there's a law and order issue, if if they feel that the that the there is a serious issue, they often dismiss. Uh, the governments and we have we have the the three lists and then the state union and concurrent list but if there's any conflict between the states and the center it's the center that prevails so and this is a conscious choice they took because they were scared at the time that um you know the the country wouldn't survive and you wanted uh unity right Um, Mm. also there's a huge focus on um on basically the fact that there are lots of social inequalities and, and correcting that. So it's a country of stark inequality. So how do you correct that? And, and you see this very strongly through affirmative action. Um, so for instance, there's caste-based affirmative action in India, constitutionally guaranteed in mm. all government jobs, in, in promotion jobs, um, and government employment and educational institutions. So if you apply uh, both as a, both as faculty and as students, it, it, there is affirmative action. And this has worked over years and been expanded uh, to include, and it's proportional to the population. Uh, to the so was that something that came out of the independence movement? Like did that come out of some tradition um, or movement that was part of the anti-British to the movement? Um, so it's a part of the anti-British movement, but actually it, it, it's something larger than that. It's a, um, it came out of, a, uh, out of basically, they were called the depressed classes. Then we call them scheduled castes and scheduled tribes now. 
or Dalits, that's the politically correct, that's the usage that we use. And it came out of uh, their struggle, which sometimes coincided with the nationalist movement, but not always, but often there was a negotiation that, that went on. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Ambedkar, who is the first Indian law minister, and he, he, he was really, he's a represent, he came from um, a scheduled caste, and he was Dalit himself, and he did his education at Columbia University mm. uh, at that time in the, in the 20s and 30s. And he became, he's considered the architect of the Indian constitution, and he was highly influential um, in making sure that the and that there were protections and came from his experience. And he and, and so there were people like that involved in the constitution making process uh, at the time of independence. And they were actively included in the process by the Congress, um, even though they were not part of the Congress. Um, so they made sure they were, and the idea was how do we correct those, um, the, those gaps over the period of time and to recognize that historically there has been massive, massive inequality, which is not just class-based. It's not about just about economics, but it's also about caste, which is which 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 is a, a different kind of hierarchy. Mm. And you referred to um, strong constitutional protections in the form of um, a Bill of Rights. How did those rights as embodied in the Indian constitution compared to the international instruments and standards and so forth? So at the time, they were very, very considered very advanced. The discussions, because we're talking about, you know, we, the Indian constitution came into force in 1950 and uh, uh, India became independent in 1947. So the, the discussions of the constitution and the constitution assembly uh, took place in the late forties. Uh, around say mid to late 40s mm -hmm. so over three around three years and for the time for the time that these discussions took place and 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 the fact that they survived they've survived and they've they've not you know they've not been overturned they were considered very very advanced and very influential so you have a strong bill of rights um, you also have what we call directive principles which are guidelines for the state to correct these uh, structural inequality in questions of um, caste inequality, questions of economic inequality. And, and they're just moral guidelines, but they've gradually been in, given, made enforceable by the courts over a period of time. And that was highly influenced by the Irish constitution. Uh, so we took in uh, a lot of um, experiences from other constitutions, from Ireland, Switzerland, Australia figures in the debates around federalism. Mm -hmm. So clearly they were very aware, uh, the people, in fact, the constitutional assembly debates, they're all recorded, there's a great record and it's easily available. Um, and I use them for my project, my current research and in other work. They're really amazing. This is like amazing, amazing uh, insight into the, how erudite those debates were. And the kind of references they refer to U.S. decisions of the time, to dissenting decisions of the time, uh, they refer to a wide range of uh, references. So, so yeah, for the time they're considered. Of course, uh, you know that happened in the late '40s. So since then, international law has also evolved mm. a lot, and so it has been through the courts, the Supreme Court, 
which is trying to keep up with the with with those, and of course through legislation, domestic legislation. Uh, but for the time, they were very very advanced and very influential. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I know that India. I don't uh, far from an expert on it, but I know that India has transitioned towards more of a market economy. Maybe its sort of international posture has sort of transitioned somewhat. How have those influences impacted on these constitutional principles and their implementation? Because I imagine that, you know, the Indian constitution must have been written and formed very much in light of, you know, Congress's positions, you know, at that time and the sort of posture of India at that time. Just curious about whether, you know, how have these things stood the test of time? Have, have they changed in their implementation as India has changed? No, that's a great question. So I would say that in terms of economic policy, purely in terms of economic policy, um, there, was, there was always a bit of a mismatch between a mismatch between what the constitutional ideals were and the way it was actually implemented by even by the Congress government. Uh, so while there was a lot of rhetoric about um, Nehruvian socialism, about land reform, about equality, etc., when it came to economic policy, it, it never really matched that rhetoric. Uh, so a simple issue like land reforms and redistribution. Um, there was a lot of rhetoric, but it never translated into substantive change. And in the 90s, when we, we went through, India went through a economic crisis and uh, had to take a big loan from the IMF. That's when we liberalized our economy under duress. And the liberalization uh, process, of course, at that time, one of the crit criticisms was exactly what you are saying, that India, according to the constitution, is supposed to be socialist democratic republic, but we are, we know we're, we're going to be liberalizing the economy. Uh, but because I think there was a mismatch anyway, um, I don't think that was the big issue. But in terms of Demo other kinds of democratic rights in terms of, you know, the rights of minorities, uh, the rights of speech, the right to dissent, those kind of democratic rights. Uh, there has been a bit of a mismatch now of late in the last six to seven years, I would say post 2014, uh, where there's a lot of tension between the political project of the government in power now and the ideals of uh, secularism and um, you know, um, protecting minority rights, which were instituted at the time of the constitution. There's a huge tension now between the two. Mm. So what's the status of, of international law in India? Is it automatically sort of implemented or received or does it have to be incorporated? No, in India, it has to be incorporated. So if, we sign, if the government signs a treaty uh, it has to be incorporated through domestic legislation. But in, the interesting thing about India is that the Supreme Court has been very active in incorporating these, uh, these uh, treaties through their judgments. Because as you know, the Indian Supreme Court is ultra activist, considered to be 
very activist almost to the extent where it exercises um, lawmaking functions often. Uh, so that divide between judicial functions and legislative functions is very is blurred in India. So in some cases, for instance, a bear, one of the cases they dealt with led to sexual harassment guidelines being implemented in, in, in institutions in India. And they basically relied on international, international law and, 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 and treaties that we had signed, the country had signed and implemented. So that's another route that you will see um, the implementation happening, which is, which is quite different from you know, a country where the judiciary would not do that. So that sort of lawmaking function, is that a product, what, of them shaping the common law or is there some other sort of constitutional power to legislate? What's the, what's the origins of that? Because that sounds quite, quite anathema to most of our common law slash Australian legal system listeners, I suspect. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a, a, a very interesting issue because there are different opinions about that about that particular issue. And it comes from a particular innovation, legal innovation called public interest litigation. And, and it is a response to the internal emergency in India in the seventies under the Indira Gandhi government, uh, where um, all our civil liberties and rights were taken away for a period of around three years. Um, and, uh, and, 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 that was done because there was a lot of uh, opposition to the to the government, and there was a lot of civil unrest at that time. And and basically, the constitution provides for these emergency powers in case of internal disturbances as well as external aggression. So they used that, and 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 clamped down. So and at that time, the uh, there was, you know, like the judiciary didn't intervene as it should have. And so what happened is. You know, in, in to compensate for that, and that's how the story goes, as it's told now, to compensate for that, the Supreme Court in the 80s, post the emergency, evolved this particular mechanism called public interest litigation, which opened up, one thing that it did was, uh, it really relaxed the rules of locus, locus standards. So all kinds of groups uh, which worked on issues of affecting marginalized rights. For instance, a group, that worked on workers' rights would file a case. And so there's no actual cause of immediate cause of action, but it's just a, uh, a case that comes up on a much larger issue. And, and that was the idea initially, you know? And so it became very activist in that way. And gradually it's become more and more activist and to the extent where, uh, for instance, the Supreme Court will rule on climate change, the Supreme Court will rule on pollution in Delhi, the Supreme Court would rule on COVID, for instance, uh, when the government, and, and, it, and because of the public standing of the court in India is very high, or generally, especially compared to other institutions, uh, they've got a certain legitimacy from that. And uh, that also comes from the use of rich jurisdiction in India, which is part of their power, uh, which I understand it's not used as much in countries like Australia. So there's a particular form and it's, it's taken this form and the criticism of late has been um, that doing that is, uh, has also its own dangers because the court sometimes just takes over these issues with unintended consequences, um, uh, which it's not equipped to do. It's not equipped to deal with 
certain kinds of issues which then have unintended consequences uh, disastrous consequences in some mm. cases so what sort of legal norms are they relying upon uh, in rendering those judgments like are they relying what on tort type laws human rights standards what like what's the the way that for example they would promulgate some kind of rule about climate change like i understand the standing is relaxed so they get these disputes sort of before them but what are they enforcing when they are sort of getting involved in those matters they rely on indian constitutional standards and international law so often it's are it's the right to life it's the right to equality mm okay the two things and the right to life has been expanded to include you know all kinds of things um whether it's environment uh air so they've really expanded uh even the scope of uh how you would understand these rights that is so interesting so what's the um the appellate structure in india like do you have a state sort of structure where you reach the highest court of the state system and then you go to the supreme court and then is there original jurisdiction in the federal courts for matters under federal law i similar to the australian system or is it something different so sure. you have the you have the supreme court which is the equivalent of the high court here is the is the indian supreme court and then you the high courts there are the are basically the state the state level courts and so you have each each state in india would have it has a high court most of them have high courts and both the supreme court and high courts have the power to take up cases directly so they they have power to take up cases directly and in a, and in appeal mm-hmm. um and so often in a lot of these writs that we're talking about they go directly to these courts um and so and so they often um the case load is very high in these cases because it's not they're not taking up just select constitutional issues they're performing both the function of a constitutional court as well as the as an appellate court and they're taking up a number of these cases are filed directly under you can you can go to the court so it's a very very high case load and often the indian supreme court has such a high case load it's dealing with all kinds of small issues and actively doing that um over many years which has been criticized for uh so yeah so you so so bo- so so there's an they perform both these functions um and and yeah of course from the high court cases are appealed uh to the to the supreme court yeah. and from the trial courts they go to the high court so there's an appellate jurisdiction on a state issue from the state court to the to the yeah. supreme court exactly yes yeah. uh but you can also directly approach the supreme court right that, that's yeah. you can also directly approach them and what's the structure of the legal profession is it based around admission to a state court like it is here or is it structured differently you have the each state will have its own bar association uh and uh, so that's like and and in terms of are you asking me about how judges are appointed or are you asking me generally about more the uh, prof- like you know do you have solicitors and barristers are they uh, 
take court first? Are there professional associations similar to, say, Australia, or is it structured differently? Yeah. So the so you have so you have the bar associations, uh, the, the state bar associations are the main professional bodies. Yeah. But we don't have this distinction of barristers and solicitors. What we have is um, if you have practiced for a certain number of years, if you have enough experience, you can be nominated as what you call a senior advocate. And these senior advocates, perhaps it translates into <clears throat> what you call so they're the ones who would, they don't brief people. So they would do the arguments and you would, you would brief them and they are considered pretty, you know, there are very few of them uh, and it's considered a very high profile appointment to be, to be appointed a senior advocate. Um, and uh, a se so you have senior advocates in both the high courts as well as in the Supreme Court. And, and, and if a senior advocate appears in a case, that they are supposed to have a very, very big clout. So people will basically pay and, and make sure that a senior advocate appears in a case uh, simply because what they say will have more of a clout than, 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 than the person who's not. Um, so yeah, so uh, in, in, I'd worked in on, I'd worked on one particular uh, case over a period of time in India, where we challenged the anti-sodomy law uh, in India, which was which was finally uh, struck down, and in that, so so we would basically brief a bunch of senior advocates, and our role was basically to go and to brief them and 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 to make sure that um, and, and do the research and brief them, and they would then argue and and it's a very uh, it's a system that's where you people get a lot of time in the court to make oral arguments. Um, so the written, you do have the written part, but there's a lot of weightage given to the, to the oral arguments. And it's quite dramatic. It's a lot of, it's a lot of emphasis on drama, on, on oratory and on, and sometimes it's shouting, sometimes voices are raised. It is, it is, it's, yeah, it's quite cinematic. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it could be <laughs> depends on what happens there so what would it look like to an Australian lawyer if you walked into an Indian state high court like what do you see is it people in wigs and robes is it one judge is it three yeah so the judges sit in benches because the, the courts are quite big. The number of judges is quite large. For instance, the Supreme Court has 32. The high courts would have quite a large number. So they don't, know, unlike in the US, for example, or in Australia, they sit in benches. <clears throat> so you would have benches of two, benches of three. Uh, sometimes for important constitutional matters, you have benches of five. In the Supreme Court, we've had benches of nine and 13, up to 13. So the, if you walk into the chief justice's court, the, often you will find these kind of matters being heard. And, 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 and yeah, in terms of their attire, in terms of the way, the culture, the legal culture, it's very, uh, like, you know, you do find uh, the judges, they don't wear wigs, but they do have, they do have all the attire, the robes, the black robes. Uh, senior lawyers have a particular robe, which is different from the rest. Uh, in their design 
and also generally you'll, you, you'll find these to the, the staff. So the, the, the support staff, uh, you'll find like these people wearing very, you know, like a very kind of old fashioned and, and, and elaborate, elaborate dress costumes, uh, uh, you know, be standing behind and introducing the judges, etc. So you mm-hmm. have all of that. Uh, and, 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 uh, I would say there's also a very strong culture of, uh, they don't, judges in India are not too fond of, they're quite, uh, sensitive to criticism more generally, <laughs> uh, so, you know, in terms of the use of contempt power, for instance, it, it, it reflects in that. So you have to be a, a little careful as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So there is a, there's that as well. And what's the summary criminal court like? Like, what's the lowest criminal court in India? And what would you see if you walked in there on any typical day? Uh, so I, uh, so my own experience in these courts, like I have never, actually, I have never practiced in these courts. I have friends that so have been to some of these courts. Uh, so, yeah, there. Uh, I would, I mean, my own, yeah, so I, I'm a little hesitant to actually give you a very clear answer, but, but, but one of the things over there is that they, again, then uh, often the kinds of decisions that they take there because of the huge caseload, uh, often you will find uh, lawyers waiting for the cases to be heard. Uh, but in some ways, from what I understand from my lawyers who practice there, uh, in some ways, it's very, the decisions there are often on technical procedural grounds and not on these constitutional, uh, you know, large issues. So in some ways, um, they're disposing of these matters and getting work done. Uh, and in some ways, they consider, I think a lot of people would consider them quite effective in that way because there's a, there, there's the, the caseload is quite high, but they're managing to deal with these. And often it's often it's just a very quick. If you're there, things will happen very quickly. Uh, you can barely hear what what is happening. You don't have to strain your, your ears, and 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 the case, and it's it's a kind of a quick caseload. Uh, so yeah. So but beyond that, there will be some. There are special cases. For instance, if it's an anti-terror trial, if it's a particular criminal prosecution or something that's, uh, let's say, a media trial, for instance. Uh, those have a particular different flavor and they might be, you know, they're just slightly different, but the normal day-to-day cases that we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, I'm hesitant to say too too much more on that point because I haven't actually been as much. A friend of mine has written a book, uh, which is going to be out, which is on trials in Delhi, Delhi, anti-terror trials in Delhi, which will be out this year. Yeah, interesting. It's an ethnographic account, yeah. So you mentioned before the anti-sodomy statutes, and your involvement in one of those cases. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that process of litigation that ultimately, I think, led to decriminalisation um, of gay sex in India? Yeah, so it came out of... Uh, so the, the first stage, I would say, was mm, a lot of advocacy and, and non-legal interventions that happened. Um, and so, so the fact that... I think in the 80s and 90s, there was very little public discourse. So one, so initially, um, some of the rights groups, people working on these issues, 
began talking about it. And one of the first things that they talked about was uh, the anti-sodomy law, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, uh, which was which was singled out as a as a particularly undemocratic and anarchic um, law that led to police that led to basically uh, police abuse by the police, you know, whether it was blackmail or violence and and just the threat of that. So that was the first stage in a lot. And then what happened is, and it happened through this, uh, exactly what we were talking about. It was a PIL uh, filed on behalf of a larger group. It's saying that, you know, there, there are not enough individuals who can come forward individually to file a case. So it was, a, it was an NGO. It was yeah. a group. It was a group of people working on the issue who filed it. And uh, in the first, uh, I would say, in the, it just happened in, say, the early 2000s. And up to the mid-2000s, it didn't, the, the, the judiciary itself was hesitant in taking it up. It was filed in the Delhi High Court. And it didn't really move anywhere. But what happened in that time was the social movement and rights movement around this issue, that gathered a lot of steam. So when it came in the in the mid two thousands around two thousand five or six, the because there was a lot of um, advocacy and there was much more public discourse around this issue, I think it also gave an impetus to the legal case and and then that's when it uh, it I think uh, you know a particular bench of the Delhi High Court they. Uh, took it up. It was dismissed. It, it went back. The Supreme Court sent it back. Uh, it was dismissed. In, interestingly, on the, on the ground that uh, that there was, you couldn't show a particular specific prosecution. Mm. Then it was sent back, saying, you know, the entire idea of public interest litigation is because it is exactly to counter this in cases where people can't come forward. And it was sent back. And in two thousand nine, the Delhi High Court uh, struck struck it down uh, uh, with the chief justice and another judge, they struck it down in, in a judgment, which, and that we were, I was part of that as well, that litigation and that judgment was the first of its kind on the issue in India. So it was very, very influential. And because it was that, uh, done by the Delhi High Court, it, there was a lot of publicity around it. Mm. And, 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 and it was reported very widely all over the world. And, and, and there they basically held that it violated the right to privacy, the right to equality, and uh, of course there was a child. Then of course it went to the Supreme Court. It was challenged. It was challenged by a group, by different groups, including religious groups from across the spectrum. Uh, so Hindu, Muslim, Christian religious groups, and a few other uh, institutions, and and they went to the court saying that this is an issue of national importance. Uh, so. We, we oppose this. And then what happened is then there were groups who joined in on our side that is basically supporting. And these were like groups of teachers, groups of mental health professionals, uh, groups of academics and so on. Groups of parents of LGBT people. And by then, so now we're talking about the mid to late, to the, I mean, I'm talking about 2014, 15, so 18 and, you know, the final judgment was in 1819. And then by then, this uh, 
the public discourse had moved to such a point that this was really one of the it was really like the one of the biggest cases that that was being reported and in, in the public eye so there was by the by the time it came to the supreme court uh, in 2000 uh, in the mid 2000 so this the 2014 is when the Supreme Court, a two-judge bench of the Supreme Court basically ruled against us. They said that it, the, the law is legal, it's constitutional. And, and what was interesting then is that the public backlash was so strong. Uh, the media, backlash in the media, the backlash from the legal community. Um, and, in, and, and we were briefing these really, really like the most senior uh, the most senior legal mm, professionals there, uh, really respected le legal professionals who were, you know, not, who were, so they were also being kind of educated by the whole case, being educated on the issue. They took it on board. And, and so it's interesting. So the, the way then the Supreme Court in, in their judgment basically said, didn't have very strong legal reasoning uh, and one of the things that they said was that there's a minuscule minority. And so, you know, they used terms like that. There was a huge backlash. And then finally, a couple of years after that, uh, and that's another uh, thing in India, because even though the Supreme Court ruled against us, the Supreme Court itself then set up a five-judge bench to uh, relook and review its own judgment because they said things had changed. But, <laughs> That things had changed from the time, and and they and and they set up a, a five judge bench, which eventually overruled overruled the two judge bench. So did that ruling only apply in the New Delhi territory? Like, was that an appeal from the New Delhi ruling? Uh, it was a, it was an appeal from the New Delhi ruling, but the, the it it applied across even the New Delhi ruling because it was the only ruling of its kind. Its impact was actually across the board. Yeah. So uh, all state anti-sodomy statutes would be invalid, applying that reasoning, basically. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that. But then, of course, it went up to the Supreme Court, so that question became moot, whether it applied or not. Mm. The Supreme Court took it up, and once the Supreme Court took it up, then it, it, then it applied across the board. Uh, because also the Indian Penal Code applies across the board. So it's, how do you interpret this law? It, we had only these judgments at the time. So is criminal law predominantly state law in India or is it a federal law? Because I think, I think I'm right in saying the mainstay of Indian criminal law is a penal code that sort of dates back to the British era. Is that right? That's right. The substantive law is the Indian Penal Code. comes from uh, British India. Uh, then you have the procedural law, which is the Criminal Procedure Court, and you have the Evidence Act. And that's all federal, is it? There, uh, it's all it's all federal, but you have state amendments. So states have the power to amend these laws uh, to apply just to their jurisdiction. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But they are federal. But they are federal level laws, and we've retained the the basic structure of these laws have been retained since. Um, British colonial times, mm. the es essence is basically the same of these, these, these the, the three laws that we're talking about. Is so whether it's hate speech or whether it's the anti-sodomy, it was the same, exactly the same wording. Yeah, it survived.
So what happens to a person, let's say someone in India um, assaults a person in a pub and causes them serious injury? Do they, are they charged with an offence under state or federal law? Do they appear in a state or federal court? Do they get state or federal legal aid? What's the sort of procedure in a t- you know, some sort of typical criminal justice case? Uh it would go to the it would go to the it, it would be this happens at the state level so i guess it follows the i mean initially it would be uh, heard at the trial court and then it would be appealed at the high court uh, but it's the state law it's the state it's it's um if it's a criminal matter it's because it's the law applies across the board but in it's the state legal aid that's involved mm. at the state level so I'm not sure that because you're asking me from the from what exists here, but I'm not sure those kind of distinctions apply there. Uh, that you have these kind of because here, the states. I, I, my understanding is it's a much more like you have this the this, the the state courts. The jurisdiction is much wider and and. Mm-hmm. It, there's a clear distinction. I don't think that applies there in that way. Yeah, okay, interesting. Yeah, so in Australia, basically, almost all criminal matters are heard in state courts, including crimes against federal law. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of exceptions to that. There's a cartel conduct provision where there's criminal trials in the federal court, but almost all federal matters and obviously all state matters are dealt with in state court. Um, so criminal law in Australia is mainly a state affair, uh, there mm. are offences, but they're dealt with in state court. So I was just curious because uh, you said that the penal code is a federal law. Uh, so yeah. basically what if you're charged with, for example, inflicting grievous harm, you're charged under um, a federal law, but yeah. you'd be appearing in a state criminal court. Yes, exactly. That's it. Exactly. You'd appear yeah. in the state court, but you're, you're dealing with a federal law. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Exactly. So, Sid, you were saying before that some of the principles embodied in the Indian Constitution have come under tension sort of with uh, the government in India at the moment and some of its direction. What sort of issues are we talking about there? So, um, in, in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, there's been a turn to the to the right and to the political right. And in India that translates to a majoritarian uh, Hindu right wing idea. So this idea that um, India is for Hindus, uh, it's a nation for Hindus. So it's a brand of Hindu nationalism and that existed at the time of independence as well, but it was, it was a brand of politics that was marginalized, especially after the assassination of Gandhi he was assassinated by a person who believed in these politics. And uh, that brand of politics was completely marginalized at that time. And, you know, the Congress brand was much more centrist. It accommodated a lot of views, but it was much more centrist. And also this, at that time, the idea that Indian secularism means respect for all religions, tolerance of all religions. And this is something quite, you know, ingrained in, 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 in people of that generation. But um, in, with the rise of uh, the BJP, 
which became the main opposition party and now it's like the main party in India. Um, their brand of politics has been based around consolidating Hindu identity. So it's, around, it's a political project that the BJP and other sister organizations, you know, they have a range of other organizations, a cultural organizations they work closely with. And their political project is basically to consolidate this idea of political identity of um, that, that um, India is consolidate a powerful Hindu identity in a majoritarian kind of politics. And where it's uh, either very direct or indirect that Muslims specifically, uh, which is who are the largest minority in India, are uh, second class in, in, in the way, you know, politically or socially. So, mm-hmm. so, so there's a, that's, that, that's a project and that has really gathered steam and um, over, over the last few years. And of course, <clears throat> with a very charismatic prime minister, uh, Modi, who we have, um, and the fact that uh, under him, the BJP has managed to win the last two general elections. Even yesterday, they've won uh, most of the state elections. That were, there were five of them that were held. They won four of them. Uh, so they're, mm, they've been very successful electorally. And so they've been able to really push that agenda. In, and it, in, in various ways, it, it showed in various ways in various legislation that they've passed in the political discourse of the time. And the fact that it's become much more acceptable now uh, to say, openly say these things, uh, which were considered just unacceptable earlier. Like even if you thought some of these things were just not acceptable in the public discourse, uh, but now it's pretty, it's pretty common um, and also, it's it's beginning to reflect in uh, in public mm-hmm. policy as well. Uh, to give you one example, there's been recently a huge debate on the banning of the burqa in India, which is the the headgear that Muslim women wear, the scarf, and and this was never it was never an issue. Earlier, you know, it was never it was never a public issue. It was an issue in countries like France, of course, you know, where you have this idea, this particular idea of secularism and how everything should be uniform. But in in our in Indian discourse on secularism, it's always been about tolerance and respect of diversity, how you coexist, uh, how you respect these rights. Uh, so, but off late, uh, all this is changing. So. You in, in the state of Karnataka, which is where I'm from, uh, there were colleges, um, government-aided and government colleges, which basically these colleges decided that uh, the girls, Muslim girls, cannot wear the burqa. And then the reason they said it is because uh, they wanted a uniform dress and that there shouldn't be any differentiation. But in many ways, it's linked to this political project. You know, the appearance is that oh, it's 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 for to promote secularism, but it's actually the effect is basically a lot of Muslim, uh, young Muslim students, female students have not been able to take their exams, have not been able to attend, 
or college. So that's exactly the impact that it's had. Many of them were even asked to remove their burqas uh, when they were when they voted to enter. So there's a huge debate going on now, but it's a reflection of the particular times that we live in that 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 this is even happening. It just it just it would have been unimaginable 20 years, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years, unimaginable. So how has this trend in Indian politics and these ideas and tensions, how's it been mediated in the courts? Like, can you reflect on that in the context of independence of the judiciary and the sort of non-political idea of the judiciary? So the judiciary, one thing to be said is it's never been too consistent on these issues. Um, so, and this also partly has to do with in the fact that the, these, the higher judiciary, that is the Supreme Court and high courts, um, the judges, often the, the chief justice is not there for very long. And the judges also, they have a retirement age. So their, their actual stint on these, um, on, on, on these, in these institutions, it's not too long. So what, what happens is, um, you, it's very difficult to actually say that the judiciary is moving in this direction or in that direction. And also because they take these decisions in, in, ben, in different benches. But on this particular issue, um, there have been some concerns about the judiciary's approach. And this came out in a big way when in, in relation to a dispute over a, a temple in, in Ayodhya, uh, which, which, is, which is basically a dispute over whether it was a mosque or a temple. And in 1992, the existing mosque was demolished uh, by, um, you know, members of the, the NBJP, BHP, et cetera. And, they, and it was demolished and there was a, and it was a land title claim that went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court um, decision, which basically, uh, you know, the decision was it was basically it upheld the status quo. So in some ways, uh, the mosque is gone now, and it's upheld the status quo. And so, at that time, there were a lot of eyebrows raised around. It was almost as if you're trying to move on and you're trying to settle this. It, it, you don't want to intervene in a larger political issue. They're saying you don't want to intervene, and they're saying we don't want to intervene in a larger political issue. Uh, but at the same time, you're not really willing to, to step in. And even in the Burka, in the case that we that I just talked about, the Burka case, it went up to the High Court. And the High Court basically said, uh, you know, we don't want to disturb, uh, we don't, in the interest of communal harmony, uh, the fact that this has become a big issue where uh, Hindu students, Hindu outfits are going with these saffron shawls and create, and there's a these colleges are not able to function. There's a lot of disharmony. So we would just let the status quo be. So so basically they haven't uh, intervened. Uh, they said these, there are these government orders, let, it, let the matter be heard. And so the matter is being heard and it will eventually go up to the Supreme Court. But they didn't step in saying that these students, these Muslim girl, female students have a right to go, have a right to education and that they should be allowed to do their exams. Uh, they didn't do that. And again, there were a lot of questions about what does it mean for their education? 
what is the impact of taking that kind of stance? So there, I would say they've been a little wary now, a little careful. Uh, but overall, if you look at the record, it's a little, um, it's not, it's not a very clear kind of way what one can, on any issue, on any issue to say that uh, the court, there have been some attempts uh, to look at the court's record on say, socioeconomic rights, et cetera, some quantitative um, uh, studies, but they often come up against this problem of the fact that it's in different benches and the fact that the judges change quite often. So it's very difficult to actually clearly see. But given, given the fact that uh, the issue is about um, a brute political majority, the court is basically one of the important, the Supreme Court and the high courts are very, very important uh, bulwarks. They continue to be, and they continue to be spaces which uh, all, um, you know, whether either through civil liberties organizations or people, political opposition, they, they do engage with very seriously because they are really the, uh, you know, they're still considered, despite all the problems, they're still considered to be uh, independent institutions that 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 you can turn to. Uh, but I was having said that it's not a black and white story. You know, there there would be, it would depend on which bench. It would depend on who's sitting there. Uh, there are all kinds of questions. But still, in the public eye, still they still have a, the courts in India. The judiciary are still regarded quite well. Uh, they're still regarded quite highly. Is there any tendency um, or perception of it for the BJP, for example, to appoint judges that are seen as sympathetic to this Hindu project? Or is that not an issue in India? Um, so, it, so, you know, judges are not, so in terms of uh, appointment of judges, is, even, if, even if you want to do it, it, it there's nothing that can be done. It, it's a gradual process. And obviously, because it's the government in power, they would have a say in what kind of judges are being appointed. So the, 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 this, 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 is, this would only be visible if they block certain, like for instance, if there's a, if there's a, if somebody being, is being considered uh, because of their seniority and the government is not happy with A person or B person. And, this, and, and, and that's when you realize exactly how it's being shaped. But otherwise, the normal course of things, if it's being done by seniority and if it's being done uh, in the regular process of in, in the regular course of things, uh, it's not very clear from the outside uh, exactly what is happening. But naturally, if, if you are if you are in power over a period of time, uh, as the the law minister does have a say, the government does have a say on who's being appointed. So over a period of time, it will start reflecting uh, in, in who's being appointed. But, but there's no, it's not like it's, it's not like you can't clearly say it's not a political appointment in the way that is in the US. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not an open process like that, where it's openly declared. Uh, and in terms of the views of judges, it's, it's not that easy to ascertain and slot in that way either. Uh, but obviously that, that will have an impact, oh, especially if the government is in power for the next 10 years or a long time. It will have an impact in the way on 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 on, on, on who's in, on the judiciary. Yeah, interesting. And this issue of the burqa is that likely 
to be litigated as a freedom of religion infringement issue or a right to education issue or right to services or a discrimination issue? Have you got a sense of how that's likely to be litigated? From whatever, from whatever I've been following, uh, the freedom of religion is, is one of the main points that they're making. Uh, freedom of religion, uh, the fact that it impinges on that. The complication there is we have a doctrine called the essential practices doctrine. So the idea that there are certain practices within religion are essential to that religion. And this is again a, been evolved by the Indian courts. And the problem there is it can often lead to certain practices uh, like the debate then doesn't become about equality as much as it, it becomes about, okay, there's a particular practice um, that is, a, so the, so what happens is this becomes difficult to challenge that. So it becomes about Muslimness rather than what is Muslimness rather than an equality question. So there, so there's some problems with that doctrine that people have pointed out. But besides that, there are questions of indirect discrimination. So what happens if, uh, you know, you're saying that all students cannot wear certain, uh, um, clothing that stands out, but it will impact one segment of students more. Mm. Yeah, so there's that question. There are questions of intersectional discrimination. If somebody is a Muslim and a woman, uh, in what way does this ban affect them as opposed to somebody else? And also questions of um, uh, some people have some people some legal commentators have even said there's a question of privacy, question of self-expression and privacy uh, uh, come up here because uh, it is something it's about also the autonomy of of the person and what they decide to wear. And so you're infringing on that. So there are lots of other questions, but I think the freedom of religion one seems to be the one that 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 will turn on so we had a sort of period maybe i don't know five years ago going back of concern about the burqa and lots of um people all of a sudden concerned about the public safety aspects and mm. uh, sacrosanct right that we all have to see other people's faces in public and so forth but I've noticed that it seems to have died off and I'm not sure if that's because of the pandemic where we've all become so used to wearing masks that all of a sudden all uh, that rhetoric is not really that sustainable anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so this, uh, this idea, some people even brought this up, this idea of security and safety and having, you know, that you need to see the person's face. But again, in a, if it's a school, if it's a college and if there are girls going to a college, so the, the response there was that it's not the armed forces that you're talking about. It's not a, you know, it's, it's, a, particular, it's a particular setting uh, that people are going, and this has been happening for years. And so suddenly, why are you saying that, that it's a security issue that you need to be able to see people's faces? There, there, was, a, there was one case in the examination center uh, where, you know, because there were issues about cheating and so, and so that came up, so the, so the burqa came up there. So I think all these things will be argued in the court as well, because from the government side, they will definitely bring these up. Uh, from the, and also the government side, of course, they bring up the issue of public order, uh, because they're saying that now it's become a public order issue. If we allow burqas, you'll have these other students who are coming and protesting. 
and uh, it's become a political issue. And so it will become, a, it will basically not lead to a public order disturbance. So there's that as well. Well, Sid, just want to say thanks so much for your time. It's been a really interesting chat, a really good overview of you and your career um, and the Indian legal system. And we really look forward to having you on on a regular basis to talk about issues as they arise on a topical basis in India. No, thanks for having me, Stephen. That was a good chat. And uh, yeah, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. And, and, you know, there's a lot happening in India, which I think some of it would be of great interest to an Australian audience. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a jurisdiction where there's always something uh, that's on the boil or something that's happening. And so it would be good to, you know, uh, explain and talk about some of these key issues to the audience here. for listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mintz